Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 1 of The Roll Call by Arnold Bennett. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recording by Simon Evers. Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 1. Inspiration. 1. George, despite his own dispositions, as he went up in the lift, to obviate the danger of such a mishap, was put out of countenance by the overwhelming splendour of Miss Irene Wheeler's flat, and he did not quite recover his aplomb until the dinner was nearly finished. The rooms were very large and lofty. They blazed with electric light, though the day had not yet gone. They gleamed with the polish of furniture, enamel, bookbindings, marble, ivory and precious metals. They were ennobled by magnificent pictures, and purified by immense quantities of lovely flowers. George had made the mistake of arriving last. He found in the vast drawing-room five people who had the air of being at home and intimate together. There were, in addition to the hostess, Lois and Lorenzin Ingram, Everard Lucas, and a Frenchman from the French embassy whose name he did not catch. Miss Wheeler wore an elaborate oriental costume, and apologised for its simplicity on the grounds that she was fatigued by a crowded and tiresome reception which she had held that afternoon, and that the dinner was to be without ceremony. This said, her conversation seemed to fail, but she remained by George's side, apart from the others. George saw not the least vestige of the ruinous disorder which, in the society to which he was accustomed, usually accompanied a big afternoon tea, or any sign of a lack of ceremony. He had encountered two male servants in the hall, and had also glimpsed a mulatto woman in a black dress and a white apron, and a Frenchwoman in a black dress and a black apron. Now a third man-servant entered, bearing an enormous silver-gilt tray, on which were multitudinous bottles, glasses, decanters, and jugs. George comprehended that aperitifs were being offered. The tray contained enough cocktails and other combinations, some already mingled and some not, to produce a factitious appetite in the stomachs of a whole platoon. The girls declined, Miss Wheeler declined, the Frenchman declined, George declined from prudence and diffidence. Only Lucas took an aperitif, and he took it, as George admitted, in style. The manservant, superbly indifferent to refusals, marched processionally off with the loaded tray. The great principle of conspicuous ritualistic waste had been illustrated in a manner to satisfy the most exacting standard of the leisured class, and incidentally a subject of talk was provided. George observed the name of Renoir on the gorgeous frame of a gorgeous portrait in oils of the hostess. "'Is that a Renoir?' he asked the taciturn Miss Wheeler, who seemed to jump at the opening with relief. "'Yes,' she said with her slight lisp. "'I'm glad you noticed it.' Come and look at it. Do you think it's a good one? Do you like Renoir? By good fortune, George had seen a Renoir or two in Paris under the guidance of Mr. Enright. They stared at the portrait together. It's awfully distinguished, he decided, employing a useful adjective which he had borrowed from Mr. Enright. Isn't it, she said, turning her wondrous complexions towards him and admiring his adjective. I have a Boldini, too. He followed her across the room to the Baldini portrait of herself, which was dazzling in its malicious flattery. "'And here's a Nicholson,' she said. Those three portraits were the most striking pictures in the salon, but there were others of at least equal value. "'Are you interested in fans?' she demanded, and pulled down a switch which illuminated the interior of a large cabinet full of fans. She pointed out fans painted by Lamy, Glaze, Jacquemont. 
This one is supposed to be a l'encret, she said, but I'm not sure about it, and I don't know anybody that it is. Here's the latest book on the subject. She indicated Lady Charlotte Schreiber's work in two volumes, which, bound in vellum and gold, lay on a table. But of course it only deals with English fans. However, Condor is going to do me a couple. He was here yesterday to see me about them. Of course you know him. What a wonderful man. The only really cosmopolitan artist in England, I say, now Beardsley's dead. I've got a Siegfried drawing by Beardsley. He was a great friend of mine. I adored him. This is a fine thing, said George, touching a bronze of a young girl on the same table as the books. You think so? Miss Wheeler responded uncertainly. I suppose it is. It's a Gilbert. He gave it to me. But do you really think it compares with this barrier? It doesn't, does it? She directed him to another bronze of a crouching cheetah. So she moved him about. He was dazed. His modest supply of adjectives proved inadequate. When she paused, he murmured, It's a great room you've managed to get here. Ah, she cried thinly, but you've no idea of the trouble I've had over this room. Do you know it's really two rooms? I had to take two flats in order to fix this room. She was launched on a supreme topic, and George heard the full history. She would not have a house. She would have a flat. She instructed house agents to find for her the best flat in London. There was no best flat in London. London landlords did not understand flats, which were comprehended only in Paris. The least imperfect flats in London were two on a floor, and, as their drawing-rooms happened to be contiguous on their longer sides, she had the idea of leasing two intolerable flats, so as to obtain one flat that was tolerable. She'd had terrible difficulties about the central heating. No flats in London were centrally heated, except in the corridors and on the staircases. However, she'd imposed her will on the landlord, and radiators had appeared in every room. George had a vision of excessive wealth subjugating the greatest artists and riding with implacable egotism over the customs and institutions of a city obstinately conservative. The cost and the complexity of Irene Wheeler's existence amazed and intimidated George, for this double flat was only one of her residences. He wondered what his parents would say if they could see him casually treading the oak parquetry and the heavy rugs of the resplendent abode. And then he thought, the humble and suspicious upstart, there must be something funny about her, or she wouldn't be asking me here. They went into dinner, without ceremony. George was last, the hostess close to his side. Who's the Frenchman? he inquired casually, with the sudden boldness that often breaks out of timidity. I didn't catch. It's Monsieur de Faucambeau, said Miss Wheeler, in a low voice of sincere admiration. He's from the Embassy. Most interesting man, been everywhere, seen everything, read everything, done everything. George could not but be struck by the ingenuous earnestness of her tone, so different from the perfunctory accents in which she had catalogued her objects of art. The dining room, the dinner, and the service of the dinner were equally superb. The broad table seemed small in the midst of the great mysterious chamber, of which the illumination was confined by shades to the centre. The glance, wandering round the obscurity of the walls, could rest on nothing that was not obviously in good taste and very costly. The three men-servants, moving soundless as phantoms, brought burdens from a hidden country behind a gigantic screen, and, at intervals in the twilight near the screen, could be detected the transient gleam of the white apron of the mulatto, 
whose sex clashed delicately and piquantly with the grave, priest-like performances of the male menials. The table was of mahogany, covered with a sheet of plated glass. A large gold epergne glittered in the middle. Suitably dispersed about the rim of the board were six rectangular islands of pale lace, and on each island lay a complete set of the innumerable instruments and condiments necessary to the proper consumption of the meal. Thus, every diner dined independently, cut off from his fellows, but able to communicate with them across expanses of plate glass over mahogany. George was confused by the multiplicity of metal tools and crystal receptacles. He alone had four wine glasses, but in the handling of the tools he was saved from shame by remembering the maxim, a masterpiece of terse clarity worthy of a class which has given its best brains to the perfecting of the formalities preliminary to day tactician. Take always from the outside. The man from the French embassy sat on the right of the hostess and George on her left. George had Lois Ingram on his left. Lorenzin was opposite her sister. Everard Lucas, by command of the hostess, had taken the foot of the table and was a sort of Mr. Vice. The six people were soon divided into two equal groups, one silent and the other talkative, the talkative three being Monsieur Defaucomblo, Lorenzin and Lucas. The diplomatists, though he could speak diplomatic English, persisted in speaking French. Lorenzin spoke French quite perfectly, with exactly the same idiomatic ease as the Frenchman. Lucas neither spoke nor understood French. He had been to a great public school. Nevertheless, these three attained positive loquacity. Lucas guessed at words, or the Frenchman obliged with bits of English, or Lorenzin interpreted. Lorenzin was far less prim and far more girlish than at the Café Royal. She kept all the freshness of her intensely virginal quality, but she was at ease. Her rather large body was at ease, continually restless in awkward and exquisite gestures. She laughed at ease, and made fun at ease. She appeared to have no sex consciousness, nor even to suspect that she was a most delightful creature. The conversation was disjointed in its gaiety, and had no claim to the attention of the serious. Lorenzine said that Lucas ought really to know French. Lucas said he would learn if she would teach him. Lorenzine said that she would teach him if he would have his first lesson instantly during dinner. Lucas said that wasn't fair. Lorenzine said that it was. Both of them appealed to Monsieur de Faucombleau. Monsieur de Faucombleau said that it was fair. Lucas said that there was a plot between them, but that he would consent to learn at once if Lorenzine would play the piano for him after dinner. Lorenzine said she didn't play. Lucas said she did. Monsieur de Faucombleau invoked once again, said that she played magnificently. Lorenzine blushed and asked Monsieur de Faucombleau how he could, and so on indefinitely. It was all naught. Yet the taciturn three, smiling indulgently and glancing from one to another of the talkers, as taciturn and constrained persons must, envied their peculiar ability to maintain a rush and gush of chatter. George was greatly disappointed in Lois. In the period before dinner his eyes had avoided her, and now, since they sat side by side, he could not properly see her without deliberately looking at her, which he would not do. She gave no manifestation. She was almost glum. Her French, though free, was markedly inferior to Lorenzin's. She denied any interest in music. George decided with self-condemnation that he had been deliberately creating in his own mind an illusion about her. 
on no other hypothesis could either his impatience to meet her tonight or his disappointment at not meeting her on the night of the Café Royal dinner be explained. She was nothing, after all, and he did not deeply care for Miss Irene Wheeler, whom he could watch at will. She might be conceding something very marvellous, but she was dull, and she ignored the finer responsibilities of a hostess. She collected many beautiful things. She had some knowledge of what they were. She must be interested in them. Or why should she trouble to possess them? She must have taste. And yet had she taste? Was she interested in her environment? A tone, a word, will create suspicion that the exhibition of expertise for ours cannot allay. George did not like the Frenchman. The Frenchman was about thirty, small, thin, fair, with the worn face of the man who lives several lives at once. He did not look kind, he did not look reliable, and he offered little evidence in support of Miss Wheeler's ardent assertion that he had been everywhere, seen everything, read everything, done everything. He assuredly had not, for example, read Verlaine, who was mentioned by Miss Wheeler. Now George had read one or two poems of Verlaine, and thought them unique. Hence he despised Monsieur Defaucambleau. He could read French, in a way, but he was incapable of speaking a single word of it in the presence of compatriots. The least monosyllable would have died on his lips. He was absurdly envious of those who could speak two languages. He thought sometimes that he would prefer to be able to speak two languages than to do anything else in the world. Not to be able to speak two languages humiliated him intensely. He decided to take up French seriously on the morrow, but he had several times arrived at a similar decision. If Lois was glum, George too was glum. He wished he had not come to the dinner. He wished he could be magically transported to the solitude of his room at the club. He slipped into a reverie about the Marguerite affair. Nobody could have divined that scarcely twenty-four hours earlier he had played a principal part in a tragedy affecting his whole life. He had borne the stroke better than he otherwise would have done, for the simple reason that nobody knew of his trouble. He had not to arrange his countenance for the benefit of people who were aware of what was behind the countenance. But also he was philosophical. He recognised that the Marguerite affair was over. She would never give way, and he would never give way. She was wrong. He had been victimised. He had behaved with wisdom and with correctness, save for the detail of throwing the ring into the Thames. Ag's warnings and injunctions were ridiculous. What could he have done that he had not done? Run away with Marguerite? Carried her off? Silly. No, he was well out of the affair. He perceived the limitations of the world in which Marguerite lived. It was a world too small and too austere for him. He required the spaciousness and the splendour of the new world in which Irene Wheeler and the Ingrams lived. Yea, though it was a world that excited the sardonic in him, he liked it. It flattered authentic, if unsuspected, appetites in him. Still, the image of Marguerite inhabited his memory. He saw her as she stood between himself and old Haim in the basement at number eight. He heard her. She was absolutely unlike any other girl. She was so gentle, so acquiescent. Only she put her lover second to her father. What would Miss Wheeler think of the basement of number eight? The chatterers, apropos of songs in musical comedies, were talking about a French popular song concerning Boulanger. You knew Boulanger, didn't you, Jules? Miss Wheeler suggested. Monsieur Defaucambleau looked round, content. He related, in English, how his father had been in the very centre of the Boulangist movement, and had predicted disaster to the general's cause from the instance that Madame de Bonnemain came on the scene. 
Out of consideration for the girls, Monsieur de Faucombleau phrased his narrative with neat discretion. His grandfather also had been of his father's opinion, and his grandfather was in the Senate, and had been minister at Brussels. He affirmed that Madame de Bonnemont had telegraphed to Boulanger to leave Paris at the very moment when his presence in Paris was essential. Boulanger had obediently gone. He said that he always remembered what his mother had said to him. A clever woman, irregularly in love with a man, may make his fortune, but a stupid woman is certain to ruin it. Finally, he related how he, Jules de Faucombleau, had driven the general's carriage on a famous occasion through Paris, and how the populace, in its friendry of idolatry, had even climbed onto the roof of the carriage. And what did you do then? George demanded in the hard tone of a cross-examiner. I drove straight on, said Monsieur de Faucombleau, returning George's cold stare. This close glimpse into history, into politics and passion, excited George considerably. He was furiously envious of Monsieur de Faucombleau, who had been in the middle of things all his life, whose father, mother and grandfather were all in the middle of things. Monsieur de Faucombleau had an immense and unfair advantage over him. To offer ever heights he might rise, George would never be in a position to talk as Monsieur de Faucombleau talked of his forebears. He would always have to stand alone and to fight for all he wanted. He could not even refer to his father. He scorned Monsieur de Faucombleau because Monsieur de Faucombleau was not worthy of his heritage. Monsieur de Faucombleau was a little rotter, yet he had driven the carriage of Boulanger in a crisis of the history of France. Miss Wheeler, however, did not scorn Monsieur de Faucombleau. On the contrary, she looked at him with admiration, as though he had now proved that he had been everywhere, seen everything, and done everything. George's mood was black. He was a nobody. He would always be a nobody. Why should he be wasting his time and looking a fool in this new world? 2. After dinner, in the drawing-room, which had cost Irene Wheeler an extra flat, there was, during coffee, a certain amount of general dullness, slackness and self-consciousness which demonstrated once more Miss Wheeler's defects as a hostess. Miss Wheeler would not or could not act as shepherdess and inspirer to her guests. She reclined, and charmingly left them to manufacture the evening for her. George was still disappointed and disgusted, for he had imagined, very absurdly as he admitted, that artistic luxuriousness always implied social dexterity and the ability to energise and reinvigorate diversion without apparent effort. There were moments during coffee which reminded him of the maladroit hospitalities of the five towns. Then Everard Lucas opened the piano, and the duel between him and Lorenzin was resumed. The girl yielded. Electric lights were adjusted. She began to play, while Lucas, smoking, leaned over the piano. George was standing by himself at a little distance behind the piano. He had perhaps been on his way to a chair when suddenly caught and immobilised by one of those hazards which do notoriously occur, the victim never remembers how, in drawing-rooms. Hands in pockets, he looked aimlessly about, smiling perfunctorily, and wondering where he should settle, or whether he should remain where he was. In the deep embrasure of the large east bow window, Lois was lounging. She beckoned to him, not with her hand, but with a brief, bright smile. She smiled rarely, and with a lifting of the chin. He responded alertly and pleasurably, and went to sit beside her. Such invitations from young women holding themselves apart in obscurity are never received without excitement, and never unanswered. 
Crimson curtains of brocaded silk would have cut off the embrasure entirely from the room had they been fully drawn, but they were not fully drawn. One was not drawn at all, and the other was only half drawn. Still, the mere fact of the curtains, drawn or undrawn, did morally separate the embrasure from the salon, and the shadows thickened in front of the window. The smile had gone from Nose's face, but it had been there. Sequins glittered on her dark dress, the line of the low neck of which was distinct against the pallor of the flesh. George could follow the outlines of her slanted, plump body from the hair and freckled face down to the elaborate shoes. The eyes were half-closed. She did not speak. The figure of Lorenzin, whose back was towards the window, received an aura from the electric light immediately over the music stand of the piano. She played brilliantly. She played with a brilliance that astonished George. She was exceedingly clever, was this awkward girl who had not long since left school. Her body might be awkward, but not her hands. The music radiated from the piano and filled the room with brightness, with the illusion of the joy of life, and with a sense of triumph. To George, it was an intoxication. A manservant entered with a priceless collection of bonbons, some of which he deferentially placed on a small table in the embrasure. To do so, he had to come into the embrasure, disturbing the solitude, which already begun to exist, of Lois and George. He ignored the pair. His sublime indifference seemed to say, I am beyond good and evil. But at the same time it left them more sensitively awake to themselves than before. The hostess indolently muttered an order to the man, and in passing the door on his way out, he extinguished several lights. The place and the hour grew romantic. George was impressed by the scene, and he eagerly allowed it to impress him. It was to him a marvellous scene. The splendour of the apartment, the richly attired girls, the gay, exciting music, the spots of highlight, the glooms, the glimpses everywhere of lovely objects. He said to himself, I was born for this. Lois turned her head slowly and looked out of the window. Wonderful view from here, she murmured. George turned his head. The flat was on the sixth storey. The slope of central London lay beneath. There was no moon, but there were stars in a clear night. Roofs, lighted windows, lines of lighted traffic, lines of lamps patterning the invisible meadows of a park, hiatuses of blackness. Beyond, several towers scarcely discernible against the sky, the Towers of Parliament and the High Tower of the Roman Catholic Cathedral. These were London. "'You haven't seen it in daytime, have you?' said Lois. "'No, I'd sooner see it at night.' "'So would I.' The reply, the sympathy in it, the soft, thrilled tone of it, startled him. His curiosity about Lois was being justified, after all and he was startled, too, at the extraordinary surprises of his own being. Yesterday he had parted for Marguerite, not ten years ago, but yesterday. And now already he was conscious of pleasure, both physical and spiritual, in the voice of another girl, heard in the withdrawn obscurity of the embrasure. Yes, and a girl whom he had despised. Yesterday he had seriously perceived himself to be a celibate for life. He had dismissed forever the hope of happiness. He had seen naught but a dogged and eternal infelicity. And now he was, if not finding happiness, expecting it. He felt disloyal, less precisely to Marguerite than to a vanished ideal. 
he felt that he ought to be ashamed. For Marguerite still existed. She was existing at that moment, less than three miles off, somewhere over there in the dark. See the cathedral tower, he said. Yes, she answered. What a shame Bentley died, wasn't it? He was more than startled now. He was amazed and enchanted. Something touching and strange in her voice, usually hard. Something in the elegant fragility of her slipper. Everybody knew that Bentley was the architect of the cathedral, and that he had died of cancer on the tongue. The knowledge was not esoteric. It did not by itself indicate a passion for architecture or a comprehension of architecture. Yet, when she said the exclamatory words, leaning far back in the seat, her throat emerging from the sequined frock, her tapping slipper peeping out beneath the skirt, she cast a spell on him. He perceived in her a woman gifted and endowed. This was the girl whom he had bullied in the automobile. She must have bowed in secret to his bullying. Though he knew she had been hurt by it, she had given no sign of resentment, and her voice was acquiescent. Above all, she had remembered him. You only like doing very large buildings, don't you? she suggested. Who told you? Everard. Oh, did old Lucas tell you? Well, he's quite right. He had a sudden desire to talk to her about the great municipal building in the north that was soon to be competed for. He yielded to the desire. She listened, motionless. He gave vent to his regret that Mr. Enright absolutely declined to enter for the competition. He said he had ideas for it and would have liked to work for it. "'But why don't you go in for it yourself, George?' she murmured gravely. "'Me?' he exclaimed, almost frightened. "'It wouldn't be any good. I'm too young. Besides, how old are you?' Twenty-one. "'Good heavens, you look twenty-five at least. I know I should go in for it if I were you, if I were a man.' He understood her. She could not talk well. She could not easily be agreeable. She could easily be rude. She could not play the piano like the delightful Lorenzin. But she was passionate, and she knew the force of ambition. He admired ambition perhaps more than anything. Ambition roused him. She was ambitious when she drove the automobile and endangered his life. She had called him by his Christian name quite naturally. There was absolutely no nonsense about her. Now Marguerite was not in the slightest degree ambitious. The word had no significance for her. I couldn't, he insisted humbly. I don't know enough. It's a terrific affair. She made no response, but she looked at him, and suddenly he saw the angel that Irene Wheeler and Lorenzin had so enthusiastically spoken of at the Café Royal. "'I couldn't,' he murmured. He was insisting too much. He was insisting against himself. She had implanted the idea in his mind. Why had he not thought of it? Certainly he had not thought of it. Had he lacked courage to think of it? He beheld the idea as though it was an utterly original discovery, revolutionary, dismaying, and seductive. His inchoate plans for the building took form afresh in his brain, and the luxury by which he was surrounded whipped his ambition till it writhed. Curious, she said no more. After a moment, she sat up and took a sweet. George saw in a far corner Jules de Cavrombleau talking very quietly to Irene Wheeler, whose lackadaisical face had become ingenuous and ardent, as she listened to him under the shelter of the dazzling music. George felt himself to be within the sphere of unguessed and highly perturbing forces. End of Part 1, Chapter 8, Part 1